Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist war the Brüder in America. So kaufen Schabes at the Skizal. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and organizer. with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is part five of our ongoing series, The Great Shanghai Escape. In last uh, episode, we discussed the Curacao um, so called visas, um, which the heroics of the uh, Dutch consul de Decker in Riga and the honorary consul in uh, Kovna, Jan Zwartendijk, and along with the Japanese transit visas. Got tons of feedback from the last episode. The most important one that I got was that I um, discussed the shot heard around the world, and a knowledgeable uh, listener pointed out that Bobby Thompson's 1951 home run in the playoffs between the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants was the true shot heard around the world and not the one by the Revolutionary War, the miracle of Coogan's Bluff. So that's, of course, a very valid point. Now, if we would summarize the Curacao and Sugihara saga. So I discussed last week the basics of the of the visas, and I pointed out how it seems that the crucial piece of the puzzle was the Dutch uh, visas and their um, agreeing, they're accommodating um, uh, first Gutwirt and uh, the Sternheim family, and and then later Warhoftig's request um, to to have this for Polish Jewish refugees as well to have that Curacao, no visa required for Curacao, and leaving out the second part that um, that you need the governor's permission, and then they go with these end visas to the Japanese consul and where Chiuni Sugihara. Um, issues the Japanese transit visas um, and discuss that whole story. Um, there's definitely a lot more to say about this. I just want to go to one more point that I mentioned briefly last week. We, we, I, I mentioned that today 
both uh, Sugihara and Zvartendaik are recognized as righteous among the nations in Yad Vashem. Um, uh, Sugihara in 1985, Zvartendaik in 1997. To the best of my knowledge, Dedeker is not recognized. And of course, Varaftig is Jewish, so he can't be recognized as a righteous among the nations, even though he probably did more than anyone else to, to in this visa story, in this visa miracle story. Um, now, again, without taking anything away from Sugihara or Zvarendaik, it's worth breaking down just to understand the components of this historical story, uh, just to clarify some, some, some things in the story. Did any of them put their life or security at risk? I don't know. It's very hard to say. Sugihara, almost for sure not. On the Soviet side, he had diplomatic immunity. Even on the Japanese side, it seems that he either had a silent uh, approval or an assumed approval or, or explicit approval from the Japanese government. It does not seem like there was an outright refusal from the Japanese government, and he definitely was not punished, at least at the time, for it. Um, like I said last week, he got promotions. He was promoted to uh, Germany and then Bucharest and Romania afterwards, and he was only fired after the war when MacArthur fired everyone from the Japanese foreign ministry, all the diplomats. Um, and and Zwartendijk and De Decker, even though they did not really have diplomatic immunity because uh, Holland did not recognize the Soviet Union, but it's it's unclear that they actually put their lives at risk or security at risk. They definitely, as far as their own government was concerned, they didn't do anything wrong. Um, they didn't break any rules. Um, and then the most important thing of the story, um, now, now this is not, and I'm definitely not trying to make them less heroic and less heroes, and no one should take this in the wrong way. I'm a huge fan of Zwartendijk and De Decker and Sugihara, and what they did is incredible and saved thousands of lives. And please, no one take this in the wrong way. I just want to get the story right. Um, they, another thing, and I think I mentioned this on the Gutwirt episode a couple of years ago, is that I once had a chance to meet, when I worked in Yad Vashem, the head of the Righteous Among the Nations Division, uh, Department, whatever you want to call it, in Yad Vashem. And I asked him, I had a minute to, to schmooze with him, and I asked him, I said, all the rigid criteria that Yad Vashem has, they need to have risked their lives, they couldn't have gotten anything in return, they have to be a non-Jew, and all that. I said, the basic criteria is, is that they were saving people under Nazi occupation. In other words, they're saving people from the final solution under Nazi occupation. I said, Zwartendijk and Sugihara, I think I actually just spoke about Sugihara, but Zwartendijk would obviously be the same thing, the Decker. They were under Soviet occupation. They were under the Soviets. The Nazis were nowhere near, and the Nazis wouldn't come until the next year. I mean, no one, and no one knew that at the time. Until the end of June the next year. So no one was a prophet and no one saw the Nazis coming. And even if they saw the Nazis coming in some sort of prophecy, they definitely did not envision the final solution. So this is a whole Soviet story. These are Polish Jewish refugees trying to get away from the Soviet Union, trying to get away from the communists. And these consuls are assisting them to get away from the Soviets under Soviet occupation. This is a 100% Soviet story. There's not a shred of Nazis involved at all whatsoever, not even a little bit. So why in the world are they righteous among the nations? That's what I asked him then. 
And he told me, well, some people are too big of a hero to make little, you know, petty <laughs> um, questions like that. And we have to recognize them as righteous among the nations, which is a great answer. And I accept it. And I think everyone should. These people are heroes. And guess what? A couple of years later, when the final solution becomes clear to the, to the world, and it's the, all those Polish Jewish refugees who are now on the other side of the world in Shanghai or or some of them made it to the United States or other places, they use those Curaçao and Japanese transit visas to get out. And their family members who stayed behind and their friends and neighbors who stayed behind who did not obtain these Curaçao and Japanese transit visas, they were all killed in the final solution. So ultimately, in retrospect, it came out that their lives were saved as a result of the visas. But in real time, this was not under Nazi occupation, it was under Soviet occupation. So it, it, it um, again, not less heroic, it means there were still great people, heroic people, good-hearted people. Like I said, they could have said no. Sugihara could have refused. Zartan Dyke could have refused. The Decker could have refused. And they went along with it. And they gave these visas. That's great. That's a wonderful, wonderful deed. And no one is trying to detract from that or demean it. It's just trying to understand it and broaden the picture. Okay, now let's move on to today's topic, which is what is the mirror's place in all of this? How does the mirror yeshiva fit into this big picture? Uh, Zvartan Dyke and Sugihara issue thousands of visas. It's, it's unclear how many. Um, the numbers that I regularly see, again, it's, it's hard to know exactly, is well over 2,000 by both. Um, some books do cite exact numbers. I'm not sure if, they, um, if those are accurate or not, but they seem to be well over 2,000 visas each. Um, and that's incredible. I mean, that's each visa can be an entire family. Sometimes it's just an individual student in the mirror or another yeshiva. Sometimes it's an entire family. So there's thousands and thousands of people who are saved as a result of, who are able to leave the Soviet Union or are able to escape the clutches of the communists in the Soviet Union uh, from this. So in this whole huge story of thousands of people leaving, there are 300 students of the Mir Yeshiva, or close to 300 or probably a little less than that. It's probably a little over 200, but that's another story. I spoke about that in an episode a few months ago, how many of the students of the Mir Yeshiva were actually involved in this. But it's the majority of the students of the Mir Yeshiva. So how do they get involved? What's their story? So uh, the, there was this um, general opposition from the rabbinical establishment um, to pursue the Curacao visas, uh, because the curse of were seen as dubious. Um, they were fake. They weren't going to be honored. And also, even if you get the Curacao visas, but you're never going to be able to obtain Soviet exit visas because anyone who applies for Soviet exit visas is just going to be sent to Siberia. And again, in the pre-final solution world, in the pre-Nazi occupation world, the worst thing in the world is to be sent to Siberia. So at the time, it's seen as the worst possible outcome. So Reb Leib Malin, who initiates the idea, Reb Leib Malin, Reb Chaim Vesaker, and others, who are leading students of the yeshiva, they're older students, they're the leading, they're a chabura, they're called the Arayas Sheba Chabura, the lions of the chabura, they're the leading students of the Mir Yeshiva, they somewhat are the heads of the yeshiva, they run the yeshiva, um, they have a lot of a say in what the yeshiva policy is, almost as if they were part of the administration itself, 
and especially Reb Leib Malin. He's, he's one of the oldest students in the Yeshiva. I believe already he's in his 30s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they, they are the, he is the one um, who goes against this consensus, this rabbinical opposition. And he says, no, we have to get away from the communists. We have to get away from the Soviets. They're anti-religion. They're going to shut down the Yeshiva. There's no way we can sustain ourselves here. And therefore, we must go out. We must get these visas. We must, as flimsy as it sounds, we have to do it. And the Mir joins the bandwagon and tries to get these visas as well. So how does that process take place? So let's take a step back to understand where the, where the Mir was throughout the visa searching which we've been describing in previous episodes. We said first they were in Kedar, and then after the Soviet occupation, they were dispersed to the four Shtetlach. In these times, the Rosh Yeshiva of the Mir, Blaise Yudel Finkel, he was one of the most active Rosh Yeshiva in his efforts during 1939 and 1940, throughout that time, to obtain visas for the entire Yeshiva. Primarily, his goal was to get them to the land of Israel, to Eretz Yisrael, to Palestine. Um, so even among Rosh Yeshiva who were opposed to the Curacao visas per se, but Reblaze Yudel happened to have been one of the most active um, Rosh Yeshiva in 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 seeing this whole Lithuania thing as temporary and trying to get out. It was actually quite unique. Kamenets to a certain extent as well. Um, most of the other yeshivas were more complacent, um, more passive. Reblazio seems to have been one of the more active ones. And there's this, and it's all documented because it's letters that he sends to Rav Herzog, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Alevi Herzog, who's the chief rabbi of Palestine under the British mandate, and, and asking him to help uh, get special extra rabbinical visas above the British draconian quotas. Rav Herzog himself who's trying to assist the yeshiva community in Lithuania as much as he can, as well as many rabbis who are stuck there with their families in Vilna, he, in during war, uh, really heroic of him, he initiates uh, on his own this trip to London to personally ask the British Foreign Ministry um, and to entreaty them and talk about how we need clergy in the land of Israel and we need to bring in these rabbis and it needs to be above quota and specials for rabbinical students. And he begs and begs. Not so successful, but there are tens of rabbis who do get these special visas directly as a result of Rav Herzog, and they're the ones who rebuilt the Israeli Torah world after the Holocaust. I mean, people like the Brisker Rav, and Rav Lezi Yudel, and Rav Shach, and Rav Cheska Mishkovsky, and um, Rav Zalman Sarotskin, and, um, and Rav, the Majid Sarebba, and, uh, and uh, um, many, many others um, um, the, who, who got the visas because of Herzog. Herzog single-handedly is the one responsible for all these people's lives being saved and for their contributions to the Torah world in Israel after the Holocaust. But he is not successful at getting for the masses of yeshiva students. There's all these letters to Rav Herzog. There's letters that he writes also to Moshe Blau, uh, Moshe Bloy, um, um, the head of the Agudas Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael. And of course, his um, Rav Yudel also is in touch with Zarach Varhavtig during this time as well, uh, trying to get the yeshiva, the entire Mir yeshiva to Eretz Yisrael. Um, the 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 uh, in addition to the idea that they were during 1940 that the Mir and Rav and other people were concerned about a future Soviet takeover of Lithuania and the Baltic states. That's what they were concerned about. They were not concerned about the Nazis, like I keep on saying. It was about a Soviet takeover, which is what happened. They also were concerned that the Lithuanian government wouldn't allow them to stay for that long because these people are Polish refugees. How long is the Lithuanian government going to allow 
Polish refugees to stay in its territory. Eventually, they're going to want them to move on. So there was also that concern, and that's what also was an impetus for them to uh, search for visas even before the Soviet takeover. At some point, it becomes clear to Rablazi Yudel Finkel that the British are not going to allow the entire Mir Yeshiva into Palestine. At pretty much around this time, this is sometime in the middle of 1940, this is the winter of 1940, um, Rablaib Malin decides to make a first move. The first piece of documentation that anyone needs before they even go for visas is those visas have to be stamped somewhere into passports. So he needed to make sure that everyone in the Mir Yeshiva has Polish passports, whoever was Polish citizens, obviously. People who were not Polish citizens would have to get their own passports from their country. So, Rebleib Malin, together with his close friend Reb Chaim Vesaker, um, they initiate this project to get um, um, passports for the entire Mir Yeshiva, way before the whole visa saga, um, and even before the communist takeover. This is in the winter of 1940, way before um, June. Um, so in, 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 uh, Rebleib Yudel went along with it. He, he, he agreed with it. Um, and and Rebleib Malin has a student of the Mir Yeshiva, a fellow by the name of Yaakov Ederman, who he goes to Kovna, and he goes to the British consulate in Kovna, and, and um, in, in the British consulate, there's a Polish desk, because the Polish government in exile, and he obtains passports for the entire yeshiva. He doesn't, he, somehow he pulls off that the Mir Yeshiva does not have to go in its entirety to get their passports. He's able to bring everyone's documentation to the consulate, and this is one of the many miracles along the way. The Mir Yeshiva was able to continue studying Torah, which is what they're very good at, and the Yaakov Ederman, who is this emissary of the Yeshiva, was able to obtain passports for everyone. So now everyone has got passports. Now the next thing is uh, Zarach Varhavtig, his father, Rabbi Rucham Varavtig, who was now a rabbi in Yerushalayim at this point, his father, so this Rabbi Rucham Varavtig was friends back in the day, I think from Tel's Yeshiva, if I'm not mistaken, with Rabbi Yudel Finkel. So, so Rabbi Yudel knew uh, Varavtig, and, 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 um, and Zarach Varavtig, who was trying to do anything he could to help the, assist the Yeshiva students in getting these visas, he makes a very interesting visit to Kedan, where the Mir Yeshiva was staying, to convince the Mir to participate in the visa thing. Once the summer of 1940, in July, once they, um, or maybe before, even before July, sorry, uh, once the visas became the hot topic. So what I want to do now is uh, read a passage from Varavtig's memoir, Refugee and Survivor, where he describes the meeting with Rebleza Yudel and how he convinced him to go for the visas. It's very interesting, at least from his perspective. Um, and he says as follows, Several Mir students suge- suggested that I explain to the Rosh Yeshiva the necessity of preparing documents and visas for as many students as possible. Though I realized the difficulty involved, I agreed to do so. Upon arrival at the Yeshiva, I entered the home of the Rosh Yeshiva alone and introduced myself as the head of the Palestine Commission for Refugees. Rabbi Finkel, a warm-hearted and hospitable Jew, accorded me a spirited reception and insisted that I stay for lunch. I strove to transmit to him my grave forebodings and the urgency for action for procuring travel documents and visas for the entire student body, whatever their immediate use. Rather than relying on miracles, I insisted that we had to go forward to meet the miracle and prepare ourselves for the Almighty's salvation. I promised the full cooperation of our commission and urged Rabbi Finkel to take matters in hand. 
Rabbi Finkel wanted to withhold any action until he was assured of obtaining Aliyah permits for the entire yeshiva. He was afraid of the dispersion of his students. I had to explain to him that there was no hope of obtaining such a large number of certificates for one yeshiva, and hence no delay was justified. Our conversation was painful and at times harsh. The Rashiva's main dilemma was how to leave the ranks of the Rashi yeshivas who favored laissez-faire, who questioned spending money on a dream and suspending the study of Torah so as to run around in circles in Kovna. The memory of that conversation, which was to play a decisive role in the rescue of the Mir Yeshiva, remains with me until today. My father, who heard the story from Rebbe Lezi Finkel several years before my arrival in Eretz Yisrael, wrote in the introduction to his Chidushe Yeruchim. A great event was reported to me by the great sage Rebbe Lezir Yehuda Finkel, the head of the Holy Yeshiva of Mir. He was living in Kedan and lecturing to his Talmidim when suddenly a young man came in and cried out, Why do you sit here and wait to be killed, God forbid, by the murderers? When asked by the sage to identify himself, the young man replied, My name is Zarach Warhaftig, and I came here from Kovna to urge you to leave this threatened place. To the question how it was possible to avoid the menace, the young man answered, I will arrange your departure from here. And he fulfilled his promise, thereby rescuing the sage and his holy yeshiva. Rabbi Finkel sanctioned my plan, a lot of the necessary funds, and entrusted the mission to a few chosen students who were to cooperate with me. That's the end of this passage. I think I'm going to try to read more passages from his memoir because it really brings an insight as to someone who was involved in the rescue operation from beginning to end. Um, but the the uh, the the uh, the Mir Yeshiva started to pursue these efforts. Blade Malin was the one who, main one who. Uh, uh, who, who decided on it. In fact, Rebbe mentioned to Zarachwaraftig that he was afraid of the dispersion of his students. The one who prevented that dispersion was Rebbe Malin. Rebbe Malin banged on the beam in the Mir Yeshiva one day, and he said, the Yeshiva blight Suzaman. The Yeshiva is going to remain together. And the majority of the Yeshiva remained together as a result. Rebbe Malin kept them together, and he went against the trend, bucked the trend, and said, we're going to go for these visas. And to him and Rebchaim Vesakar, and he asks another student of the yeshiva, Eliezer Portnoy, Laser Portnoy, who he, he was the one who uh, who went ahead and pursued the Kurosaw visas for the yeshiva. He's the one who went around Kovna to the consuls to hear what was going on, to speak to Varavtig, and to arrange that the Mir Yeshiva as an entire group should get it. So Lazer Portnoy's involvement also needs to be emphasized. He was one of the crucial uh, keys to this story as well. Um, and there's this, they dawn, the, the realization dawns upon them, upon Varavtig, and upon the Mir Yeshiva, and upon the masses of refugees, that they have to look east, like we described last week. Uh, they can't get into Palestine. Western Europe is engulfed in flames. The only way is across the Soviet Union through Japan to perhaps Curaçao, at least to get these Curaçao so-called visas. After the Western Europe is occupied by the Nazis and the Baltics by the Soviets, and Reb Chaim Grzynski passes away, and the closing of all the consulates. This is the panic season. This is the summer of 1940 that we described last week, that crucial month of July and August. Now, um, the the story gets even better when we get to this stage of the Japanese transit visas for the Mir Yeshiva. Sugihara, like I said last week, he was a diplomat on one hand. He was also a spy for the Japanese imperial government. Um, he um, was sent to open this consulate, which was really unnecessary from a diplomatic point of view. But he was really opening it. The Japanese government wanted him to open it 
to be a eyes and ears for the Japanese government because now that the Molotov and Ribbentrop uh, pact was signed, the Japanese assumed that the pact would be broken soon by Germany, and they wanted a a someone on the ground to see German troop movements across the border, and he would be have his eyes out for that. So Sugihara was also a spy. Um, now Sugihara was considered. So the Germans they suspected that Sugihara was a spy and their erstwhile allies, the Japanese, so they suspect that he was a spy. So they send a German, a fellow by the name of Wolfgang Gutsche, to be the assistant to Sugihara in his office, and to work as his assistant, um, officially as his assistant, and Sugihara hired him as assistant, and he was actually a spy on Sugihara. He was a Gestapo agent, and he was <laughs> reporting back to the Gestapo what Sugihara was doing. So you have a very interesting situation. Sugihara, the diplomat, who's also a spy, a Gestapo agent who's spying on Sugihara, but also an assistant in the consulate, and they're running this consulate. And now there's lines and lines of people outside who have these dubious Kurosawa visas asking Sugihara for transit visas. Now, Sugihara's apartment happened to be on top of his office, which is also a cool thing. Not always is that the case. This is the consul's house is not always in the same building. And here's another great part of the story, is that Sugihara's wife is awakened by the early in the morning, by this long line. Hundreds of people are coming around. It's the end of July, the last days of July. And she says to him, look at this. There's All these people are asking, let's, let's, let's help them out. And Sugihara looks out his window, and he describes it himself, and he, he's, these masses of people need his help, and he's going to go ahead and issue these visas. And it becomes a mass of people. And he and his his loyal assistant, Wolfgang Gutsche, the Gestapo agent, are distributing these visas to all these Jews, Polish Jewish refugees to get out. And they can't keep up with the pace. And then a third student of Mirishiva, we mentioned Yaakov Ederman, we mentioned Eliezer Portnoy. And here's a third student, a fellow by the name of Moshe Zupnik. And Moshe Zupnik was sent by Rebleib Malin to go get the Japanese transit visas. Rebleib asked Moshe Zupnik to do it because Moshe Zupnik was a German uh, student, um, German citizenship, um, officially now, I mean, German, the, German, the Nazi government had stripped Jews of their citizenship, but he carried a German passport and he spoke a fluent German. He was a bit more worldly. So he was asked by um, um, uh, Rebleib Malin to take care of this stage of the, on behalf of the whole yeshiva. He was supposed to get the visas for the whole yeshiva without them coming and standing in line. They're going to stay studying Torah in the four shtetls that they had been dispersed to, and Moshe Zupnik is going to take care of it all. In fact, uh, Moshe Zupnik is buried next to my wife's grandfather in the cemetery here outside Beit Shemesh. And whenever I go with my children on a yard site to my wife's grandparents, I make sure to stop with them at Moshe Zupnik's cover, and I tell them, uh, Kindelach, you know, this man is not so well known, but he is the one responsible, one of the many people, but one of the people responsible for the saving of the entire Mir Yeshiva, and we should recognize him and his role in history and in saving the, the Yeshiva. And I heard his interview that he gave to a Torah Masora documentary, a fascinating interview, and Moshe Zupnik describes how he speaks to Sugihara, and he speaks to Wolfgang Gutsche, and he's 
trying to arrange the visas for the yeshiva, and in his discussions, and he speaks this fluent German, and he seems like he knows what he's talking about, and he's very worldly, and he offers to assist. He says, it's 300 visas I'm asking for, or I don't know if it was 300, but between two and 300 visas that I'm asking for, and I can help you write it down. I can help you write. I can sit it. And he becomes Heimish enough in the office there that eventually Moshe Zupnik is has an official desk and room in Sugihara's consulate. And he's helping Sugihara and Gucha write the visas. So you have this extraordinary situation where a Japanese diplomat slash spy and a, a German assistant to a diplomat secretary to a diplomat slash Gestapo agent, and a yeshiva bacher from the Mir are writing visas together to save Polish Jewish refugees, and along with also, in addition to them, among those refugees is the group of the Mir yeshiva. Um, and, um, and that's amazing. He actually, Zupnik actually describes how he asked Gutsche, um, um, why are you doing this? Why, why are you helping us? I thought Gestapo and Nazis and, you know, why would you help Jews? So uh, Gutsche tells him, I'm a dedicated Nazi. I believe in the Nazi ideology as far as the future for Germany. And I see Hitler as a great leader for Germany. But I disagree with his policy about the Jews. He kind of like, in his own mind at least, separated the two. And he said, um, I, I, I don't think, you know, that I, what he's doing to the Jews is right. So here's, I'm doing my part. And then he said the following to Zupnik, a fascinating thing. He said, let me tell you something else. He said, the world is a circle. Whoever's up today can be down tomorrow. Whoever's down tomorrow can be up today. So I'm doing a kind deed for you. And if things switch at some point and that you're on top and I'm at bottom, remember me and remember what I did for you. That's what Wolfgang Goethe tells Moshe Zupnik. And Moshe Zupnik related this word for word, almost, I don't, I don't know if I exactly said it word for word, in his testimony. So um, it's a fascinating insight. So that's um, how the Mir is, is, is getting it. Um, this whole thing takes place, like I said, July, August 1940. Um, and uh, in fact, after the consulates close, uh, the visas r- continue as uh, forgeries. Uh, they continue. People start forging visas. They say, "Okay, now the consulates close." They start to forge visas and see and see if they can get away with that. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. Some of the forgeries were caught. Some of them were better done. Some of them were more sloppy. Um, but there was uh, continued uh, with these forgeries of Corsell visas, forgeries of Japanese transit visas. Um, in, in, in also interesting, another side point, which I think a lot of people overlook, is, is that, that the refugees said, after the consulates closed, there's no more Dutch consul, the Soviets closed it down, there's no more Japanese consul, the Soviets closed it down. So the, 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 uh, the refugees say to themselves, what, wait, if the Curacao visas can be visas, and the Japanese transit visas can be transit visas, then what's the difference which consulate comes from? So they tried getting similar visas at the Dutch consul and the Japanese consul in Moscow. Some of them were successful. The Dutch and Japanese consul in Moscow also gave those visas. And some of them tried to get it through other countries. And another uh, crucial person in this regard, who I think is overlooked in the story, is Rip Schleim of Volba. Rip Volba was a German yeshiva student of the Mir, who had returned to Germany at some point and made it to Sweden, escaped from Nazi Germany to Sweden. And he, as a Mir Yeshiva student, is a great man, uh, later on was famous as a Mashkiach. He spends the war years in Sweden. Now, some people know about how he helped 
um, as the Vard Hatzala agent in Sweden. So he helped fund, uh, funnel the funds to the Mir Yeshiva in Shanghai throughout the war because Sweden was neutral. But what's less well known is how he approached the Dutch, the Dutch consul and the Japanese consul in Stockholm on behalf of, of, of refugees still stuck in Lithuania after the consulates had already been closed in Kovna and tried to get them visas there. And he was successful to a certain degree. He was able to get, I don't, remember, I don't know the exact number, but he was able to get some of them visas from the Dutch and Japanese because the same thing, the Curacao, and, uh, Curacao visas from the Dutch consul and the Japanese transit visas from the Japanese consul for some of those stuck in Lithuania. He was able to send it to them and forward it to them. And, uh, and that is another heroic deed that Rupshleim Volba was able to arrange from his place in Stockholm. Now, the question now goes, so then... What was the issue? Why was it only the Mir Yeshiva that did it and no one else did it, right? And that's the big question, and this is you know, a bit of a delicate topic and somewhat controversial, so I'm going to try to um, you know, keep this, keep this uh, you know, without, without, getting, uh, without getting a rock through my window. Um, the, let's try to go back into real time, into the perspective of the rabbis at the time, and try to understand what their perspective was. Because the official rabbinical establishment, and we'll give them names, right? Rechaim Isaac the undisputed Godel Adar, um, Rabbi Aaron Cutler, Rabbi Chana Wasserman, um, all the great Rashi Yeshiva, uh, at the time, they were against it. They said, Shev Ve'al Taisa. That was the word that they kept on saying, the phrase that they kept on using. It comes up in the documentation, in the memoirs. Everyone quotes the rabbis as saying that, Shev Ve'al Taisa. Better to be passive, don't, don't pursue the visas. Why not? Let's try to understand their perspective. The Curacao visas were seen as dubious, fake, dangerous. The prevailing attitude says it's better to stay away from it. Now they're learning Torah. They're studying Torah. They're safe in this country. Um, the visas the, together, the Dutch and, and Japanese visas, cost them a full week of their stipend from the joint. The, the, the JDC stipend that refugees received, it would cost a full week of that stipend just to pay for the visas. So how are they going to buy food? Is it, and, on, and, and, and if the visas are so flimsy and fake and, and not even going to be useful. And what's the point? Why would we want to run around Kovna for days waiting on lines, waiting for something that was so flimsy, that was so risky, that, w- that probably won't even work, possibly even dangerous? It definitely, by all accounts, did not seem like a good idea. That was the attitude of the yeshivas, Sheva al um, there were individual students in the yeshivas who did so on their own against their position of the Rosh yeshivas and rabbis. But the general attitude, and again, these individual yeshiva students who did, they got saved. They ended up either in the United States or more likely in Shanghai, along with the other refugees. Now, the biggest fear was that even if somehow the Curacao visas would work, but they would not be able to get Soviet exit visas. That was a death sentence. That was... Uh, that was going to be, they're going to be sent to Siberia. Now, the Soviet, it was a real risk. The Soviets were already sending people to Siberia. As soon as the Soviet occupation began, intellectuals, politicians, writers, journalists, religious figures were arrested in the middle of the night by the NKVD and deported to Siberia, Jews and non-Jews throughout the Baltic states. And this happened at several times throughout the Soviet occupation. In fact, just a week before the Nazi invasion, in, I think, June 14th or 16th, 1941, literally a week before the Nazi invasion on June 22nd, 
There was this sweep. Thousands were arrested at the border of Siberia that saved their lives. But they didn't know that at the time. Uh, it saved their lives because a week later the Anzac group came to Lithuania and killed everybody. But the, uh, along with the Lithuanian collaborators. But the, the, the Soviets were deporting people to Siberia. And they were scared. And the worst thing, again, before the final solution, before the Nazi invasion, before the Nazi occupation, when you're under the Soviets, the worst thing that anyone can imagine is being deported to Siberia. And if you're to pursue a visa that seems like a guaranteed one-way ticket to Siberia would seem to be a dangerous thing. Don't do it. Cheval Tyson, don't do it. Um, so it seems like it was a rational decision, not an irresponsible one, um, by the rabbinical leadership, by Rabbi Meiser and others. Um, Rav Pinchas Hirschprung, who is one of the, who's part of the Yeshivas Chachmei Lublin contingent, uh, who also made it to, 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 to Japan. Most of the Yeshivas Chachmei made it to Shanghai. I think Rav Pinchas Hirschprung made it straight to uh, Canada, if I'm not mistaken. But um, but he he get, definitely got the Kurosawa and Japanese visas. So he, in his memoirs, he wrote a memoir, and he refers to the prevailing attitude at the time. He says everyone was calling the Kurosawa visas Asher Yatsar visas, meaning toilet paper visas. So I guess when things got desperate and refugees finally decided that they want those visas, they were probably running around Kovna asking, can you spare a square? Because they wanted these toilet paper visas. And now um, the, uh, the, 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 I, that was the prevailing uh, idea. Um, uh, so the, the, I'll, t- I'll tell you a story. I'll introduce with a story. Um, I was once uh, guiding a group of yeshiva students, um, an American yeshiva, bunch of years ago, and we were in Lithuania, and we went, of course, I bring every group in Lithuania to the Curacao, to, excuse me, to the uh, Sugihara uh, house, um, to the, Su- the Sugihara house where the consul was, where his apartment was, where there's a whole beautiful museum today, and I tell the whole story, and I'm telling the story, and I'm saying that, you know, Reb Chaim Eiser and and, and, and Reb Aaron Cutler and all, all the rest of Yeshiva were against it, and, and Reb Leib Malin said, no, we have to pursue it, get, to get away from the Soviets, the Soviets are anti-religion, they're going to destroy the Yeshivas, they're not going to allow us to study Torah, we can't practice our religion under the Soviets, we have to do anything with Messiris Nefesh to get away from the Soviets. So, again, it was all about the Soviets, not the Nazis. So, Erblay Malin went against the consensus. Now, that is the story. That's the story of what happened to the Mir Yeshiva. That's the story of why they're the only ones who got saved, is because Erblay Malin made that courageous decision. Um, so, I st- say this story, and there's no other way to say it, right? There's no way, way to temper it. And the rabbi, the, the rabbi of the, of the group that, that I was leading, pulls me over to the side afterwards quietly and says, why did you just do that? You just made my job much harder. I said, what did I do wrong? He said, all the guys are coming over to me now and said, how did Rebbe Malin and the Mir go against what the rabbis were saying? Um, so I told him, I said, look, two things I have to say. Number one, um, isn't that your job? You're an educator. You're a mechanic. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, I'm a historian. I'm, 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 I'm just supposed to be giving the history. You're supposed to be providing the chinuch. You know, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not my issue. Um, that's, that's, that's your job. Second of all, um, that's the story. There's, there's no other way to cut the cake. I, there, there, I, I don't have any issue with it because I never, um, I never applied the, the, uh, the concept of papal infallibility to the rabbinical establishment. So I don't have any issue with it. So Chaim Meiser read the situation in a certain way because that's the best information he had at the time. It was an intelligent decision that he made given the information that he had at the time. He had no idea about the Nazi invasion. He had no idea about the... Einsatzgruppen and the final solution. So he made the best decision what he thought. The fact that it turned out history proved otherwise, that's not his fault. There's nothing wrong with what Reb Chaim Meiser did. So that's not a problem. Reb Malin didn't see the Nazi invasion either. He thought it was worth doing it to get away from the Soviets. And he decided to 
to uh, to, uh, to to do to go against the establishment. That's his prerogative. So I didn't see any issue with it. Then a couple of years ago, my close uh, friend and colleague and I, Davi Safir and I, um, were writing together a article, a landmark article for the Mishpacha magazine on Blade Malin, which is a fantastic article, covers a lot of the stuff what we're talking about in this story. I highly recommend that you read it if you haven't yet. And 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 here we're publishing it for Mishpacha magazine, so we have to really get it right because if we write that Rebbe Malin went against the rabbinical establishment, I have young kids at home. I don't want anything to happen to them. I also want to marry them off one day. So um, and I'm not using a pen name to write the article, so it's not worth it. So we have to get a good version of the story. So providentially, it worked out that we were doing conducting an interview with a a uh, close. Uh, of um, someone who was very close with Rebleib Malin, and he told us the following story. He said that just a couple of, I think, weeks before Reb Chaim Meiser passed away in August 1940, Reb Chaim Vesaker, who was Rebleib Malin's close friend and right-hand man, was vi- paid a visit to Reb Chaim Meiser Grzynski. And Reb Chaim Meiser said, what are they saying in the Mir Yeshiva about the escape, about visas? What's going on? What are they saying? What are their Arayas Shabachabura? What are the lions of the Mir saying? And Reb Chaim Vesaker admitted to him that, um, well, we're kind of like, uh, we're kind of doing it. We're kind of going ahead with it. We're strongly considering taking these visas, uh, you know, basically despite what you and others have said. And Reb Chaim Eiser said to him something like, uh, almost in a metaphysical sense, I don't even know how to explain it. He said to him, the, an individual, you know, is an individual. But if it's the group of the yeshiva students who lead the mir, then it becomes a decision of the mir yeshiva. It becomes a decision of the lions of the chabura of mir yeshiva. And they, as a metaphysical, spiritual entity of the yeshiva, it's a decision of the yeshiva itself. And a decision of the yeshiva itself is greater than a decision made by the Gadladar, made by the great rabbis. And that, uh, that's, oh, that, phew, a big sigh of relief. Now we can say it wasn't a, against the rabbinical establishment, but the mere yeshiva, all you need to do, apparently, to get uh, this decision right, is have a group of the students in the yeshiva come to the decision together, and then you get this spiritual entity of the yeshiva making the decision, and, and then it's okay. So then that was a way to get out of that, and that's how we wrote it in the article, and that's how I'm going to end it off uh, over here as well. Um, what I want to discuss, that was, that was the Mir Yeshiva getting the visas. What I'm going to get into next time, so stay tuned, is we're going to talk about the exit visas. How do they get the Soviet exit visas, which is the possibly the most important part and the most dangerous step of the whole process is to apply for and receive. And how did the Soviets agree to give those exit visas? So that's a bit of a cliffhanger. So we're going to discuss that next. This is Yehudi Gerber with Jewish History Soundbites. Um, please tell your friends and family about the podcast and about this ongoing series. They can all subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform where it's available. This episode, this entire series, and all episodes that you can listen to. Um, you can leave a rating and review. You can follow us on, on LinkedIn, Twitter, and other social media. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites, like I said, and I hope you enjoyed.